Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to a special 4th of July edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, where today we wanted to recognize the brave men and women of our armed forces who put themselves in harm's way in order to allow us the freedom of those often quoted unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So for this episode, we wanted to bring back a guest who is a retired U.S. Army Military Police First Sergeant with over 20 years of law enforcement and military experience. As a matter of fact, he first appeared on the podcast nearly one year ago, just a couple days shy of that, way back in Episode 9. That was uh, July 12th, 2022. You can go back and listen to that in the archives. When he was on then, we wanted to make a point to invite him back for another appearance, and today's episode just seemed like the perfect opportunity. Before we bring him in, allow me to introduce the commander-in-chief of this here podcast, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Buddy, I am great. And a happy 4th to you. Happy 4th to you. You know, this is one of my favorite times of the year. I don't like the hot weather, but I love July 4th. I love what it stands for. Couldn't be more excited. And I love Joe Willis. So I, I think we've got the trifecta or quadfecta, whatever it is we've got. Everything's right today. I This is the hierarchy in your life. It's left of Greg podcast, Joe Willis, your wife. In that order. We might as well get it out there. Guess when my anniversary is? July 4th. <laughs> no kidding. Oh, oh, absolutely. Hey, come on, buddy. Oh, wow. Come on, man. Talking about fireworks. Oh, there we go, brother. Happy anniversary. Yeah, man. Wait, wait. Is it your anniversary to your wife or to Greg Williams? Listen, let's not complicate <laughs> things, all right? Okay, let's, let's, let's not mix those things. Yeah, that, that's, how, that's how guys end up on the couch. <laughs> okay, I got you. I got you. Hey, man, I am excited, though, because uh, you guys know I, I love Joe. I enjoyed the conversation we had the last time he was on the podcast, and I would expect that this one is going to be no different. Yes, he's a very educated man, well-spoken, and I think he's going to have some great stories to tell. So why don't you go ahead and introduce him for us, and let's bring him on here. All right, our guest today retired from the United States Army in 2016 after spending the majority of the last two decades in direct leadership positions from team leader to company first sergeant. He served back-to-back assignments at the United States Military Academy at West Point as the Senior Enlisted Advisor for Military Science Instruction and as the Academy's Equal Opportunity Program Manager. And he's also served assignments in South Korea, Honduras, Germany, Iraq, and Kuwait. Currently, he is the Chief Learning Officer at First Help. That's something we talked about the first time he was on the podcast, where he oversees learning and development along with that organization's marketing efforts. And despite rumors to the contrary... He is not the goalkeeper for the Nashville Soccer Club. We welcome back to Between the Lines, Mr. Joe Willis. How are you, sir? And a happy 4th to you. Happy 4th. Independence Day. Uh, Truly blessed to be here, guys. I'm super excited about this conversation. I've been looking forward to it uh, since you first asked. This is going to be a great conversation today. All about America. How can we go wrong? Exactly. Now, now, Joe, it's funny you should say it's all about America, because I wish that you could listen to some of the conversations that take place before you jump on these things right here. We had about, I don't know, three-minute conversation, Brent, about the fact that you are indeed American and not Canadian, because <laughs> apparently, apparently there was a misconception about that. Well, to be fair, our executive producer, Aaron, gets you and Brian Willis confused, and he is Canadian. So I think that's where the he says this now, but I think that's where the disconnect's at. Yeah, if I could only be... Uh, as smart and talented as Brian Willis. And if you haven't had him on, I, I, I don't know if I'm, you have, or maybe I yes. missed that episode. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, man, what a, what a hell of a guy. But he is uh, north of the border. But uh, no, I am from here and I am not a uh, goalkeeper. When I did play soccer, I was a fullback. Uh, but the, uh, um, when I, I Google my name, I, I mentioned earlier during the, the first part of the conversation, if, if I do want to check to see if I'm somewhere on the Internet, I have to do minus soccer or minus goalie. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm like the 40th page. Right. So if I do come up at all. It's like that scene in Office Space where he talks about Michael Bolton, you know, and he's like, I was cool until uh, he started. Michael Bolton started winning Grammys. You were the Joe Willis until he came along. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, <laughs> I Google Michael Warren and what I get is the guy that played on uh, Hill Street Blues. Okay. 
He's much taller than I am, and he's much darker than I am, and he played basketball, I believe, at UCLA. None of those things describe They me. don't apply to you. No, yeah, that's not you. Yeah. Hey, but we, we wanted to have you on because we want to recognize the folks that are currently serving and have served in our military, and I'm amazed at people who are able to spend an entire career in the armed forces for a variety of reasons. But but 20 years, it doesn't sound like a long time, but it is a long time because it's a grind when you're in the military, isn't it? It's a little bit of both. I, you know, whenever that conversation comes up, the moment of reflection, I'm like, was it a long time? Hell yeah, it was a long, no, it wasn't a long time. It is this, if I look at certain moments of it, it was forever and it was never going to end. And I, it just dragged on. Right. And then others, I'm like, man, where the hell did that time go? The best years of my life just flew by. And so, yeah, it, it's a little bit of both, but I certainly, uh, you know, now that I'm retired, I tell people I, I miss the clowns, but not the circus, not one bit. And to be very clear, there are a lot of clowns, but it is a multifaceted circus, isn't it? It is much more than three rings. I will tell you that much. Uh, <laughs> Barnum and Bailey <laughs> got nothing on the military. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I, I, I want to take you way back for those who maybe haven't served in the military that transition that somebody has to make from civilian life into the military life. I mean, you talking about culture shock. Yeah. I think even people from military families oftentimes struggle with that because it's such a change in the way that you have to live your life. No doubt. It is everything. And, you know, I, I didn't come from a, a military family. My, my dad was military when I was very young. But uh, by the time I joined, too, it was long, you know, ancient history. I was not prepared as much as I thought I was for that transition from all of the freedoms and, and all of, of that to suddenly being in this immersive environment where everything was dictated to me to a certain extent. And uh, you had to think outside the box, but the box was only so big. And uh, there was a, a lot of a lot of challenge there. I will tell you. It has defined me and it has defined so many people I know in, in so many different ways. Super proud of the opportunity, but yeah, definitely a, a transition, a culture shock. Let's talk culture shock for a second. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's probably worse for the people coming into the military nowadays than it was when I went through basic or when you came in. People, and it's not just kids, but but people are constantly connected. They have that phone and it literally they can text, they can call, they can do anything like that. So so there wasn't this withdrawal of that constant connection when I went through that maybe they're going through now. I can't even imagine. So when I was a first sergeant for a basic training company, an OSA company at Fort Leonard Wood, and it was right, it was at that 2012 time where cell phones were a thing, smartphones were a thing, but what we have today, you know, that pales in comparison. And so I know the challenges the people that I was training faced as far as that withdrawal and that lack of constant connection and putting themselves to sleep with the the blue screen, how, how that just wasn't a thing anymore. Right. And so uh, those first few nights, it, it is, it's kind of like a detox, a digital detox for them. Well, this is my experience and uh, yours is probably completely different, but I thought one of the worst parts of that, that initial transition was the reception station. I don't know what your experience was like, but the reception station for our listeners is, is when you first get to where you're going to basic training, it's where you go and all your paperwork is done. You get your shots, you get uniforms, you get your haircut, all those things. And it's just like, boom, 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 boom. You know, I, I went to Fort Benning and, and I went, and, oh, as a matter of fact, basic training started, uh, June 1st. And, and so that's the start of the summer season down in Georgia. So guess what they did to us in the middle of the night? Tornado drills. Mm. And, and as if you're not getting enough sleep as it is, that part of basic training, it was just like a blur. It's that thing that that three or four days, whatever it was, it seemed like a lifetime. Yeah, I, I remember distinctly like getting to the airport, getting picked up in a van, brought to the reception station. I remember I was in civilian clothes at the time, obviously, and I get out of the vehicle and it's everybody's in BDUs and camouflage. And it was like really like 
crack of dawn early, like still like, you know, dark outside. And I was like, that stuff really works. There are people over there. Like I'm in the army now. Right. And I, that was one of my first, first memories. And then, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. This fury fast pace of like, fill out this paperwork, you know, your social goes on everything back then. They've, they've changed this now, obviously, but you had to have that memorized. And I, I remember my signature that I worked hard on to actually be a signature died in January of, uh, of 1996, because I just started signing things with a J. I didn't have time to sign things effectively. And so, yeah, it, it effectively died then. And then you go through the lines and there's this thing, you know, you'll do throughout your, your career where bravery and courage, we talk about that in different contexts and, and bravery is often just getting in line and knowing this is gonna be this event for you, this uh, kind of suck fest and that shot line was one of those moments where I had to be brave for one of the first real times in my life because I wanted to turn around. They, I'm telling you, they looked like the, the syringes they used were in these like scissor type things. And I've got this Dr. Seuss mind thing happening. And these things were gigantic, like this, this image I had in my head. And so I get in there and they literally, they, these were syringes and guns that they were injecting us with. And I was just like, what the hell? Like, I've it, got, it got anxiety out. just by you telling me this. <laughs> what, what, Joe? You, you remember after you got the shots? It, it was like a big, like, like, like a bee sting. You'd get the the big bump that would well up with, with the, the little red dot in there, and you're walking through this line, and man, they're getting you from both sides. Like, bam! You know, it's like, ow! It's like, bam! Bam! Right? It's just like it's like a rite of passage getting through. And then you get to the end, and they tell you like, I bend over it and just relax your right leg, and that's where you get the tetanus shot in the butt. And I was and. Brent, this is, I'm talking nearly 30 years ago at this point for me, and, and, and Mikey too. It is as vivid now as it was back then. Like the, this reception, and then, you know, you're, you're in the barber chair getting your hair cut, and, you know, there's, there's no real physical training. This is, and I'm thinking, this is the army? Like this is what I signed up for. <laughs> then they give you your uniform. And for whatever reason, they decide that that's when they're going to take your first official picture, right? And I yes. remember the picture, my basic <laughs> training picture. I'm sitting there. I, I didn't have any bruises, but it looked like I'd been worked over by some master, you know, torturer. You know, just worked over because I've got this dazed look on my face going, what in the world is going on here? Yep. Absolutely. I'm sure you want to have a conversation with the uh, recruiter if you had one. Yeah. Hey, uh, can we maybe go over some of the things we talked about before? <laughs> Yeah, I, I missed this part of the recruiter speech. Yeah, like I, yeah. I did not catch this part. So I got to ask you, you know, so you're at this part and then you mentioned like this blurry haze of things. I had this wait a minute moment, right? It was my first hurry up and wait experience in the, uh, the army, which I'm sure every veteran out there is familiar with the term hurry up and wait. You do everything you can to get to the line of departure or, or be wherever you're supposed to be. And then you sit there, right? Well, I had that, I had about four days of really nothing, but then this thing happened and that's where you get on the cattle trucks. Oh, so yeah. Mikey, your, your first experience going like, for people who don't know cattle trucks, they, they are what they sound like. They look like cattle trucks and that's what they transport uh, basic trainees around in. And so, so you go from this place that even though it was a blur and it was bam, 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 you started to, to develop and understand the rhythm of the place. Right. And then all of a sudden they load you up and you've got to carry everything you've been issued. You get on these cattle trucks and you go over there and, and I, buddy, they open the doors to the cattle trucks. Okay. And there was this little bitty drill sergeant, drill sergeant Scroggins. And he, he goes, hey, take your time getting off my trucks. I don't want anybody to get hurt. And so people kind of started and all of a sudden he goes, get off my trucks. Welcome to hell. And you go running around, you go running around the, the, the trailer. That's when I say, mommy. <laughs> yes. right. Oh, yeah. There was some of that. <laughs> but you go run around there and there's this mass of drill sergeants. Just, and it's like a swarm. This wasn't in the recruiting video. This was not part of be all you can be. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> Not one bit. I remember the glasses coming off. He had these uh, these gold rim glasses, which were unauthorized, but I distinctly remember these bright gold rim glasses. And he takes them off just as we cross these railroad tracks. He says, on that side of the tracks, you were safe. 
on this side of the tracks, you're mine, and just <laughs> let into us. And then next thing I know, we are the doors open, and we didn't get the it's okay, take your time. I've, I've heard of this before, but it's okay, take your no. It was a like push from the back, everybody out, uh, and then you go into as you just said that that shark attack. Which by the way, they're in this phase now where shark attacks are not what they were when you and I went in. And I want to pause briefly to say this is not to poo poo on modern training. There is a purpose. There's a lot of research behind this new methodology. What Mikey and I remember is very special to us and uh, you will have your special memories if you're joining from this point forward. But I distinctly remember a lot of the stuff I, I started that day with, I did not end that day with, and I never got back. I was shaving with somebody else's shaving kit <laughs> for the first four days, right? Like I had no idea where my stuff was until somebody comes to me and he's like, hey, uh, are you Willis? I think this one's yours. And I ended up getting my stuff back. The stuff I had was not his. So he ended up getting some other guy's stuff. It was an adventure. My, my barracks. So I was at Harmony Church and this is 1987. So these are the barracks that were built. I believe they said 1939. So that gives you an idea how old these things are. And they were these old two-story barracks that were, were off the ground on these cinder blocks. The company road in between there was all gravel. So that's what we're getting smoked on. Now, I have to share a personal story here to show you how vivid the memory is. Now, when you're at the reception station, you're issued this manual that you're supposed to carry in your cargo pocket. In mine, it was the blue book. I was infantry. And he said, you, you need to study the blue book. And in the blue book, it tells you your general orders. You learn the ranks and all that. Dude, I studied. I studied all the rank because anything I can do to reduce trouble, I'm there. <laughs> We're in ranks that right after we got off the, the cattle trucks and this little guy comes up to me and starts yelling at me. But he had a rank on him. I had no idea what it was. No idea. Never seen it before. And so he asked the question. I said, well, he's acting like a drill sergeant. Yes, drill sergeant. I'm not a drill sergeant. Get down. Right. So I end up down there. And a little bit later, he comes back and he asked me another question. I'm like, well, son of a gun, he must be an officer then. Because he wasn't wearing a round brown. He's got the regular cap on. Yes, sir. Sir, I'm not an officer. I'm like, what is this guy? You know? So he comes back a third time. And I'm looking at this thing. And it's his rank insignia is a shield with a knight's helmet across it. And I'm like, well, that's the closest thing to a specialist I've seen. So I go, yes, specialist, specialist. Oh, my gosh. And I'm down on the ground. So I'm down there on the ground doing push-ups. And he gets down in my face and he's going, it's drill cadet, drill cadet Alexander Hicks. And, and this dude that was between his sophomore and junior year at West Point, And they had to go and do do some service. And that happened to be his. So um, drill cadet Alexander Hicks, if you're listening and I've, if my memory serves correct, you're from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I would love to be able to talk to you. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too funny. Yeah. You, you talk about lifelong memories. You and I are in the training field. The, the ability to look back and reflect on how they take somebody with zero experience and weave them not only into knowledge, but into a team. And you got to see it from both sides. So I'd love your perspective on this. You got to be the person that was being molded. And then you also were supervising the people doing the molding. So how do they go about doing that? You say there's a lot of a lot of purpose behind it. But but what is the purpose, I guess, of basic training for those who haven't been through it? Yeah. So I'm I'm very fortunate in that. I did uh, a stint as a first sergeant at uh, basic training in OSA company for military police. And then two assignments after that, I was the um, senior enlisted advisor for military instruction at West Point, which isn't necessarily in the same TAC arena, but I was always there for our day. And then uh, we had them for the, uh, the summer for, for that first summer. Like take that shark attack, for instance, and its purpose back then, less researched than it is today, was essentially that moment of a significant emotional event. If we want cultural change, that's one of the things, reacculturation is the other, but that takes so long. If I can create a significant emotional event that ties somebody, that anchors them in an institution, which the military is one of our, our social institutions, and look at you and I right now, the vivid memory that we can go back to 30 plus years ago and connect with, 
that's what its purpose was. And they knew this even back then. And before you and I even thought of serving, they knew the purpose of that. What's happened now through research is they've learned that it can't all be traumatic, right? And there were some traumatic things. There were often times where uh, things got out of hand during the shark attack because emotions get high and we look at group think and the dynamics of that. So what they started doing was around the time that I was there was being very intentional about top three involvement. So commanding officer had a role that he filled that day. I had the roles of first sergeant that I filled that day. Things were very scripted for us. It was very uh, programmed out. And so when we look at this from a trainer's perspective, I have to create that significant emotional event, that anchoring moment. And when I go back to the Facebook group that was the kids that I saw, the kids, I mean, they were young adults. So let me be fair here. The young adults that I saw coming through and like kid like I was back then, they remember that as vividly as I did. They'll have that anchoring time. But I can tell you as a seasoned professional who was there with a different purpose that day, it was truly about reception and integration. I had very specific things I had to do within that first 24 hours and drill sergeants were on a mission to create that emotional event, but also to unify the troops for what we had coming for the next 17 weeks. So there is a lot of science behind it, a lot of research, but there's also a lot of memory building, a lot of esprit de corps, and a lot of that anchoring that has to happen. It's interesting to me because you talk about that significant emotional event. What struck me was the frantic frenzy of activity when you first got there, but when you eventually got to bed that night, how quiet it was. Eerie quiet. It was like dead silent. And it was one of the most, for me personally, it was one of the most self-reflecting times of my entire life. I mean, <laughs> you're talking about someone questioning their decision-making. I think that was going on with everybody. But what amazes me about people who serve in the military, especially the American military, is that after all that happened that day, everybody got up the next morning, not one person tried to quit. They didn't know what the mission was. That combined mission mindset it carried people through that entire process. Absolutely. Yeah, in 800 people that came through during the time that I was in that role, I think I can remember maybe two. One distinctly because I had interacted with him, which I don't get that much interaction, didn't get that much interaction with individuals, but I had interacted with him during that day. And um, the drill sergeants came to me the next morning. They were like, first time, we don't know what you said to him, but apparently he doesn't want to be here anymore. And all I really said to him was just keep your chin up, kid. Right. Like That was it. And so but two that I can think of. And I, I had a feeling about him that day that it, it, it just was not a cultural fit for him. And it's but you're right. I mean, so when we look at the the profession in that way and all of the things that make it what it is. It is tremendously important that we build that cohesion as early and quickly as possible. I guess the the tradition and all that stuff that, that is done, and it has to be intentional, okay? Because one, one of the things that I look back on, when you would go to any range, it was named after a soldier. And that soldier had done something to preserve the freedom that we're celebrating today. And they had done it in an exemplary fashion. Listen, Brent, Brent knows this. I'm a crier, right? I'm an emotional guy. I can remember marching and going to different ranges throughout the, the, the army installations, just reflecting, you know, what was it like for the people you know, 35 years ago that were marching down the same roadway, knowing that they're heading to the to the European theater or maybe they're heading out to the Pacific people. They try to capture it in movies, but it's like there's somebody here with me. There's something bigger than me here. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the, the days that um, I really embraced and I wanted the entire cadre to do the same thing because it translated so well in that was the um, bayonet training day. There is something that happens that day. You can watch the transition of people as they uh, develop the confidence and that it always starts off with a, a story of a time that soldiers had to fix bayonets. And whether you go back to Revolutionary War or any, any number, the drill sergeant that, that was leading the training that day would always pick the story and um, really 
kind of hammer home the uh, the connection to the warrior mindset and to watch that transition. That was the first day you really got to see them get into the the warrior cry and, and all that kind of stuff. And and while it sounds like we're, you know, breeding a, a bunch of, you know, radical, you know, but it's it's not. It is truly about cohesion and the willingness to be that professional when the time comes to embrace the reality that so many came before us that paid that ultimate sacrifice. Uh, am I one who's willing to do that? And I, I think seeing them for the first time in that space, it's, it's powerful. Even as a, so as a, a troop going through it, what I remember is trying my best to impress my drill sergeant with the, you know, my warrior face, which was never good enough. And, you know, hitting the, uh, you know, parry the left, parry right to, and hitting my knuckles on that stupid spring thing that, you know, cause I, I did it wrong. And I just remember in that day, but when I saw all of us at the end covered in sweat and like, I felt connected that day as a troop. Years later, watching this happen, I watched a bunch of awkward Joe Willis's running through there, doing their best to parry left and parry right and jab and rah, make their warrior face. Yes, it was awkward for them. And, but in that moment, I saw them becoming the warriors we needed them to be and, and our nation needs them to be what you just talked about kind of takes me to another point in your role as a military police officer. And I think that one of the things that's interesting about policing the military is that everyone there has been trained in the use of weapons. Most people have access to weapons that civilians don't have access to. But the research shows that statistically speaking, there is less violent crime committed by those in the military than there is in the civilian world. As a military police officer, that had to be something that was in the back of your mind that, listen, that, you know, these folks have by and large had the same training that I've had. You know, if I encounter somebody on a traffic stop in the civilian world, uh, chances are they haven't any training. So from police perspective, how did you handle that dealing with those types of people? Yeah, so presumed compliance is a huge issue with us in the military police corps. So uh, that is, I assume under general military authority, if I give somebody an order, they're going to comply with it. And generally speaking, day-to-day -day socialization, our client base, our community is rather well-disciplined, as you pointed out, right? And so I distinctly remember watching, I won't drop his name here because uh, chances are he may listen to this at some point. Uh, this guy say, hey, it's at a bus stop, an unruly passenger is, is you know taken off the bus by passengers because we used to have a Greyhound bus stop right on Fort Leonard Wood. And so he uh, he's being held down by uh, uh, some passengers and he's a soldier. So uh, this guy who's a patrol supervisor says, hey, go ahead and let him go. Hey. Parade right. Boom. The guy hit him. I said, what are you doing? Right? Like, this is like rule number one. You've already got the guy on the ground in a relatively easily cuffable position. Why not? No, nope. it was just, I, and so I will tell you that was a constant threat we had that you just kind of assume people are going to do what you tell them to do, especially once you reach a certain rank, right? Like people just pay attention. The other thing is we often would find ourselves training for was that ninjas in every corner because everybody's so highly skilled, right? And like, you know, inevitably the, the time that we go deal with something, it's going to be a dude barricaded in a barracks room with a saw right? Like a squad automatic weapon, right? Like a, yep. a fully automatic uh, 556 uh, weapon. Yes, on all ends of that spectrum. So first, the presumed compliance piece, getting people past that, that general military authority does not work on a DUI, right? Like it, it just doesn't. And on that other end of the spectrum, we don't have to constantly treat our community like they are the utmost threat. We would find people on, on both ends of that spectrum. But you're absolutely right. When we trained, I, I remember the Fort Bragg sniper situation on the PT field. I was on an SRT at the time, and that suddenly became like, hey, everybody, we need to start training for this. All that really is, is an outdoor active killer situation. And right. once, you know, you, you get past that, it's so there's, you know, a lot of different um, a lot of different components to that. That's a that's a fun one to unpack. 
Well, let's shift gears for just a second, because that, that kind of describes uh, the role of the military police officer stateside. What is the role of a military police officer in a wartime environment, in a combat environment? What role do they what, what are the, what are they responsible for? Yeah. So in a wide variety of aspects, they have many of the same roles in the forward deployed environments that you're going to find in the rear, right? So all of the law and order stuff on an installation often falls under some sort of a, a military police purview. As far as the outside the wire, it gets very broad at that point. There was uh, everything from route security uh, and checkpoint management so to keep the the supply routes, the MSRs, the ASRs free and moving often fell to military police. But the thing is, military police are a valuable asset that have another purpose and you can supply that elsewhere. So oftentimes that would then get moved over to uh, other entities, uh, other commands that could uh, could take that on. And then so where the specialization comes in is in that partnering with local law enforcement for the purpose of law and order. And so uh, reestablishing law and order doesn't matter what conflict you're in or even if you're not in a conflict, if a military police uh, company or any size element is deployed to an environment, one of the first priorities is establishing a, a liaison with local law enforcement and to build that law and order capacity. And so that is a big piece of it. So Throughout the uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the war on terror and a lot of the activity that was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan was largely about building the competency of uh, law enforcement. And so uh, everything from standing up police academies to actually going out and partnering with police stations and you know just building those relationships where hey let, let's actually go out on patrol. Let me show you how a patrol works. And uh, while you're not necessarily doing traffic stops, uh, this is a good opportunity just to do some some knock and talk sort of stuff, right? And build relationships with the communities. We're, we're your police, we're here to support you. And otherwise what they would do is just kind of often just stay in the station, not knowing what to do. And so that's a, a big component of it. It's almost like a special forces type activity where you're training the locals to do the job that you've been doing. So, so that they can, they it's sustainable beyond your, your direct involvement with that activity. Absolutely. And, and to be fair to all of conventional forces, that became a big priority over the last couple of decades as to building the capacity of our conventional forces in any occupational specialty to partner with their peers in the, uh, the host nation or the uh, local forces. But from a military police perspective, you're absolutely right. Like one of my favorite experiences was this moment where we got a tip from an organization that it was kind of a grassroots effort among the Iraqi population to basically give tips, right, to their local police. So the uh, IPs get this tip. They don't really know what to do with it. So they reach out to the military police company and say, hey, we need support in this. There's this uh, rolling cache coming through. We have reason to believe this is actually going to happen. And so uh, they do. They the military police company goes out there with this organization and the, the uh, local IPs. They conduct a, a flash checkpoint and actually apprehend the individuals involved. Seize the vehicle, which was a, a rolling cache. And then what do you do with that? Look look at it from a civilian perspective. What happens next after I arrest this person who is in possession of illegal weapons? What happens? There has to be the follow up with it. I mean, if you want to be truly successful, there has to be some type of judicial process that has to be undertaken to ensure that the, the person is held accountable. Absolutely. And that's one of the, the things that was missing and often where the expertise of American military police lend themselves to uh, the forces on the battlefield, where how, what do you do with that? How do you seize that evidence? How do you collect it? And then how do you take this and move it into a host nation criminal justice system? Which, by the way, the Iraqi criminal justice system is distinctly different than the American criminal justice system. So we had to have lawyers who were doing, like I said, all conventional forces play a role in this. We had to have lawyers who were partnering with local prosecutors. Here's how you actually prosecute this. Here's the cool part that I, I really enjoyed the most was we had set up a, a forensics facility at Cobb Spiker where we were actually doing uh, forensics exploitation and use that facility to gain evidence that was used in a trial 
that was uh, that convicted the individuals who were involved in this process under their rule of law. So they were not uh, detained in American detention and put into a detention facility. Instead, by, with, and through, the Iraqi police conducted this flash checkpoint. They affected the arrest of criminals who were transporting illegal weapons. They seized those weapons, later destroyed the munitions, then also convicted them in their rule of law under their court system. Huge success story. So so the role of the uh, military police isn't to go in and cram the American judicial system down the throats uh, of these countries that we're in. It's to support the judicial process and uh, framework that's already in place. Absolutely. And I mean, even take uh, here in the States, both, you know, you and I have done a lot of training, different agencies around the, uh, the country as far as um, systems and practices. If I take what works in New York City, NYPD, a, you know, a department of 30,000 officers, and I try to impose it on an agency that has 15 people in the, the Southwest, it's not always going to fit. And I think that's one of the things that as trainers, you know, we've learned that you've got to contextualize it and make it appropriate for the culture that it's in. There are best practices that we as Americans, and, and trust me, like I, I remember distinctly having those moments of bias where I'm like, why the heck can't you just do this, right? Like, well, it doesn't work that way. And, and you know, uh, inshallah is a, is a real, if God wills it, is a mindset there. And then there are times where uh, we would be at the mercy of, if, if God wills it, this will happen. And there's, it's just different. And you have to adjust to that. Otherwise, they're going to reject everything you're saying. And this isn't just this, you know, population of Iraqi police. This is uh, pick you know one agency in this country to another. What fits culturally and contextually there is you got to take into consideration. I want to shift just a, a second uh, and talk about your work with First Help because I have a good friend of mine who is military veteran, and he will say, "Don't call me, don't text me on Veterans Day, or Memorial Day. Those are difficult days." And as much as we are celebrating our freedom, and a lot of people are out, you know, enjoying the day to. Today, there are a lot of folks that uh, are having a difficult time on Independence Day because they're remembering the people who have lost their lives. How can that tie into your work with First Help? Yeah, so um, I would say the the biggest piece of this is is that once again we, we've got to be aware that everybody handles all of this differently. There are some who crave that connection on those days and, and go out and seek it. Uh, but on the other hand, many, just like your your buddy, just kind of want that moment of solitude. There are Memorial Day. There are those who are convinced that to say happy Memorial Day is taboo. And those who have not only accepted it, but embraced that it's okay to be happy on Memorial Day, right? Another you know, big one is on the 4th of July, we often see the signs in people's front yards, you know, veteran with PTS, you know, no fireworks, please. And that sort of thing. I think one of the things that we need to do as a community who are, you know, the, the fellow vets and that sort of thing is connect with those that we're close to and be respectful of those individual wishes, right? Like if somebody doesn't want fireworks, sure, don't let them ruin your, your entire holiday, but develop a relationship with them and be respectful of what's happening there in that person's life, um, I would say is a big one. I would say the other thing is to the the from the first help perspective we often talk about you know the wrong time to fix the roof is when it's raining right kennedy's quote there get ahead of it if you've got veteran friends and you're not a vet yourself ask those questions like hey when memorial day comes around is it okay to see happy memorial day get their perspective on it when the fourth of july is here like what do you celebrate on the fourth of july i'd love from my own perspective to say that for the fourth of july it's all about patriotism and red white and blue and all of that stuff for me and and while there certainly is a taste for it and i i do you know appreciate that the bigger picture is it's about community and family and connecting with people, right? And it, it always has been that way, no matter how patriotic I'll, I'll ever be, for me, it's that. So I would say to answer your question, Brent, maybe that was a little long-winded in the answer, but get ahead of it, connect with it well in advance. Cause each one of those holidays has their own unique 
element to it. Memorial Day is truly about the ones we've lost. Uh, Veterans Day is about those who have served in any capacity and, and are still serving today. And the 4th of July, Independence Day, is as much about my neighbors who could care less about the military. They just want to have a nice barbecue and realize it's awesome to be an American. We've all got to have respect for that. Yeah, You know, it's interesting to me when you when you watch the different ways that people celebrate July 4th. I think it's very difficult, although people find a way to do it inappropriately. It is about being an American and recognizing the freedom that was bought and paid for by people like yourself who served in the military. And I think, you know, Memorial Day is one of the most sobering days of the year for me, just reflecting on the sheer number who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. But as I get older, what really starts to hit me are, are the people who continue to pay the price. You know, they've lost limbs. Uh, you know, they, 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 they suffer from PTS. Uh, they've had traumatic brain injury. And that price that they're paying is lifelong. It's so sobering to me, but it's also in another way, it's so encouraging to me that brave men and women are willing to do that and are still signing up to serve in the military. Absolutely. I was just listening to this um, video speech, uh, Reagan speech, and they had kind of overlaid it with this really cool uh, video effects and everything. And it got to that point, I'd heard it before about, you know, we often think of the uh, men and women we've lost as being these old senior people. But the reality is that the majority are young. And when we look at the relationship between veterans and law enforcement, let's just take a a moment to pause on that. About 25% of the first responder population is veterans. It ebbs and flows different organizations, depending on where you're at. But across the the nation, about 25%. What we find is that suicides among first responders is right about that 25% line as well. So what that tells us is that just because you're a veteran doesn't necessarily mean you're more likely to die by suicide as a first responder. It, It correlates there, right? But it also tells us that we do have two distinct populations. And if we can affect one, we can affect both. And so we just met with the VA for the second time the other day. We're having a, a a great conversation. I say the other day, this will air on July 4th. So it was a little while ago, but what's happening right now uh, across the, the populations, the veterans affairs office is working very hard to establish a line of communication and a line of service for first responders. And I want to give them all the credit that they're due that uh, they've taken a bad rap. And, you know, the Veterans Affairs Office has really worked hard to overcome some of the stigma that was associated with them uh, in that mental health space. And I can tell you without a doubt, if you go to uh, the Veterans Affairs Office that look up, just Google Veterans Affairs, make the connection or go to veterancrisisline.org you will find a tremendous amount of resources there. And uh, uh, dial 988 and press one. And remember, this used to be the suicide hotline, right? We're no longer calling that. We're calling it a crisis line now because it may not be a person who is in a suicidal situation, but they've got a crisis that is starting to develop and uh, they need someone to talk to. And I will tell you without a doubt, I have confidence in the veteran crisis line to be that. And if you go to the make the connection materials, there is so much in there. If you're dealing with PTS or alcoholism or domestic violence in your home or any number of things that often come with the heavy burden uh, that we carry, the resources are there. The help is there. You just have to look for it. The VA has taken a bad rap. But if we were to be honest in the first responder world, their response in many cases has been no different than many of the police organizations or the fire organizations or the dispatch organizations because we, we, we just ignored it for a long time. We wouldn't listen. We don't want to hear about it. We, we ridiculed in some cases the people that admitted that they had some issues. So they, they've taken the rap, but they've kind of been the heat shield for some of our other professions as well. True story. Yeah, it's a a great point. And because they've been out there and they're dealing not only with this small population that is the uh, veterans within the first responder community, but they've got millions 
of, yes. of veterans that are in one way or another, whether they are just now transitioning out and they're trying to get through their claim and they serve, you know, six years, eight years, whatever, or they're a 30 year vet looking at retiring uh, or they are passed by 30 years. Right. And they're still using the systems. Uh, there's a tremendous load on them to to resolve. And when they were making mistakes and there there were some some horrible things that happened. But I think at this point they've worked very hard to make amends and are working diligently to develop those systems. My challenge to to veterans out there is again, get ahead of it. The wrong time to find that counselor, the wrong time to deal with a crisis is in that moment of crisis start developing those relationships ahead of time and put them to the test. If you're not getting the service you need when things are good, then that's the right time to bring up the issues. The wrong time is to wait until the situation's bad and then try to solve it. And talking about building systems and getting the word out, you continue to do that right now with First Help. And in fact, you and I are going to be co-teaching on a day coming up uh, next month, August 24th. Uh, down in Kennesaw, Georgia. We're doing a virtual academy live down there. I'll be doing my thing, but but what are you going to be speaking on uh, during that particular event? Yeah, Mike, I'm, I'm absolutely excited about it. So we have a program called Responder Readiness. It's a four-hour workshop that takes a, a very, not surface level look, but not too deep of a dive on, on stress. We get that as first responders. We understand what that is. But then we start looking at ways of reframing stress and a lot of the positive psychology mindset, some stuff from Dr. Kelly McGonigal and the way she looks at it in the book, The Upside of Stress, highly recommend anybody in this space, pick that up and read it. But we kind of flip stress on its ear. What are some of the ways that we can take that thing that happens inside of us and turn it into a positive response, uh, a challenge response? I can do this, an excited delight response. It's okay to be excited about this stressful thing that's happening in my life or Tend to befriend. It's okay to reach out for help. It's okay to seek connection when I'm stressed. And so we take a look at those. Then we get after the persistence piece of this. One of the challenges that we often have in this space is framing those conversations for how to have the difficult conversation. We use what's called the results-oriented communication model, where it's a, a simple framework that I can pre-stage a conversation that if I need to talk to Mike, here's the things I'm going to say, right? Like I, I kind of want to have this laid out in my head and how I'm going to address it. It's different than sitting at home all day, waiting till somebody gets home and then releasing the buzzsaw on them. No, this is a framework. <laughs> this is a framework where I can say, Hey, Mike, I've noticed these things. I overheard you say this. Here's what I think in the story I'm telling myself in my mind right now. I'm worried. I feel this way because of it. Here's what I want to do about it. Can I get a commitment from you? It's a very simple framework. But what we often do as human beings is we jump straight from the dude, I saw this to let's do this. We skip over all of that important stuff in the middle. And so we give them a, a time and space to practice that. Uh, we also go over the local resources and have them kind of fill out a worksheet on what are the resources that are available. Give them some time in class to prepare that. And then we start everything off. We kick the day off. Now, this used to be the, the final module, uh, but we now kick it off with what we call the range of resilience. It is five very simple, practical resilience skills that any one of us could use at any time and should be using on a regular basis, which I'm going to give away the answer to the test right now. It is recognizing the good, right? Those uh, it's seeking intentional joy and gratitude, which is a difficult thing sometimes for those of us who live in this world of constant negativity and the worst of the worst, right? We go over that, recognize the good, R. A, active constructive responding. How do we engage with people? And you know, I, I do this little demo, everybody will see it then, but it's kind of a, an example of what wrong looks like. And then we talk about how to actually engage with somebody we care about, because uh, the reality is so many of us find ourselves slipping by picking up a, a phone and just kind of uh, not paying attention to that other person or whatever. So active constructive responding. Notice the world around you. Very simple mindful skill, but 
<laughs> this is one I have a hard time teaching because we could go so deep on it, but I only have a little bit of time. So we introduced the concept of mindfulness and, and noticing the world around us. Get up and move is a, uh, a skill which uh, is largely about all of that developing the neural pathways of finding joy and gratitude, being connected to that mindfulness, but also creating those that time and space for endorphins and uh, that sort of thing to get that, um, that positive uh, neurochemistry uh, happening. And then lastly is energy management. Everybody knows about the, the breathing stuff, right? That's a pretty common one. Uh, we go over um, cyclical sighing and a little bit of research out of the Huberman Institute, which I highly recommend people look into uh, basically how to manage that energy that's building up in us. So those things uh, kind of real, that's a very surface level of what would be going over. When we were scheduling this class and I asked the uh, one of the agencies that's kind of leading the hosting of this, I said, hey, what what topic would you like? And he goes, ah, man, wellness and resilience. I said, well, I know a guy. I know uh-huh. a guy. Hey, that, that was an easy one. It was the easiest one to schedule so far. <laughs> you know, as we're wrapping things up here, I just want to point out that, that one of the things that I am so blown away by is the fact that we still have people going in the military and doing that job so that we can celebrate days like July 4th. And I can't think, but if folks, if you're listening and you have served, you are serving, or if you're going to serve, man, thank you for what you do because it does make a difference. And making a difference is what living should be about. Now, uh, Joe, uh, you're gonna appreciate this. I was denied the permission to sing God Bless the USA on this episode. I wanted to. It's going in my I mind right s- now. I who, I did not. I was not a part of this conversation. We have a CEO and uh, <laughs> the CEO. He, he reminded me this is not a music podcast. <laughs> this is a first responder. And we don't want this to be the, the last thing that these people hear before they, they unsubscribe. But, uh, man, happy July 4th. And thank you for your service. God bless America. We live in a great country and we oftentimes forget it from with all the stuff we got going on. But I will say that this country is great because of people like you, Joe, and people like you, Brent, and people like you, Aaron, and people like you, Brandon. We're all different, but that difference is what makes us so great. I wish we could take the emotion that we have on days like Fourth of July, harness it, and just continue it the other 364 days of the year. If we could figure that out, man, we'd be doing well. I I wish we could uh, figure out a way to do that. Absolutely.